we finished chapter 8 of the book of John. The book of John's been a great book for us. I, I've really, really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, we looked at probably the most in-depth study in the Bible dealing with the real meaning of sacrifice. When Jesus talked about the fact that Abraham saw his day and was glad and rejoiced. And I, I took you back to probably the greatest chapter in the Bible that really shows you Christ's death on the cross and his sacrifice back in Genesis chapter 22. You know, every, every doctrine of the Bible, every concept of the Bible will have a definitive verse, a place where you can go, and that verse will define for you through the rest of the Bible whatever that subject is. And for understanding the concept of sacrifice, You've got to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24. And most of you know the story that takes place back there. David, he wants to buy the threshing floor of a guy by the name of Arana. And he wants to buy it because he wants to make a place of sacrifice for the Lord. And the man who owns the property, he says, no, 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 you're the king. You please take it, and I want to give it to you. And David says, no, I want, to, I want to pay for it. And the man insists, and he says, no, just please, you're the king. David, please just take it and do what you want to do with it. And David makes one of the greatest statements anywhere in the Bible that defines for us what sacrifice is when he says in 2424 that to give a sacrifice it must cost me something. And that's the biblical definition of a sacrifice. Now little did anybody know at the time, I'm sure David didn't know at the time, but that threshing floor that he bought when he made the offering to the Lord, that's exactly where the temple was built in Solomon's time. That's where the Millennial Temple will be built. And if you would go to the Holy Land now, you would find that uh, right now the Muslims have that piece of ground, and it's where we call, we call the Dome of the Rock. And uh, that is the original place where that threshing floor was that David purchased and then offered to sacrifice, and little did anybody know the consistency of how God would take that all down through and history. And I told you, I told you this story uh, in John chapter 8, verse 56, was built around Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham offers up his own son Isaac as a sacrifice to the Lord. And we went through all of that. And I showed you how that that was a picture of what Christ was referring to when he said, Abraham saw my day. And an Old Testament picture of Christ's death on the cross. Uh, and becoming my sacrifice, taking my place, and all the key things are in place to make the parallels. Number one, it took place on Mount Moriah. That's where Calvary's cross was. It takes place on the third day, and there's a resurrection connected with it, just like Christ came out of the tomb on the third day. There were two other men there uh, that represent the two thieves. You got wood that Isaac put on his back, which is a picture of Christ carrying the cross for you and for me. You had the fire 
which was a picture of God's judgment. You had the knife, which was a picture of God dividing himself from his son. And as I told you, the greatest aspect, I think, was the total obedience of Isaac, that he didn't fight his father, he trusted his father, he did exactly what his father asked him to do, climbed up on that altar, and was willing to become a sacrifice. Every aspect of his sacrifice laid out in an Old Testament study that uh, shows us what we should be in our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I never got into this last week because it was, it was so much there. <coughs> but you know, Genesis chapter 22 is a great chapter for parents and their own children. I don't know if you saw that or picked that up or not. Uh, but parents, you know, are, are the key to how their children turn out. The Bible says, as arrows uh, in Psalms 127.4, <coughs> as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. As parents, you and I take our children like an archer takes an arrow, and you launch them through life to hit a target. Now, in an archer world, it's a bullseye or a deer or whatever, but for you and for me with our children, it's heaven or hell. And you launch them in that direction. You know, and it's a thing where, you know, it's an easy pattern to see. Kids who wind up doing nothing for the Lord usually come from parents who do nothing for the Lord. This is why I try to instill in every one of you, no matter where you're at in your spiritual life, you need to begin to allow God to develop you and use you. I've had many, many parents that I've talked with over the years that tried to tell me that their children were causing parents or children were causing problems in the home. And I always tell them the same thing. Children never cause problems in the home. Children just reveal the problems that are in the home. And that is such a truth. And it's an easy pattern to see. You know, I've spent all my ministry. Now, I'm a great believer in, in sports. I was never an athlete myself. But I, I think when your kids get involved in sports, it's a really good thing. I think it develops their character, it develops their athletic ability, it develops all their senses and skills. I, I, I know there's a lot of churches out there that, that, that just say that, you know, you never should do that. Hey, let me tell you something. If you keep it in the right balance and you keep it and understand the, the procedure by which it has to run, I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible, it, it, it's an incredible. I think it's good when your kids get into choir or they get into band. I think that anything that stretches them, that allows them to develop themselves in one area is really good as long as they're still developing themselves in their own relationship with the Lord. And I've seen it all my ministry. Hey, I've seen parents make every mistake they could ever make with their kids. I've always told people that I have absolutely, if my kids didn't turn out right and they didn't do the right thing and weren't involved in ministry with me, I had nobody to blame but myself. You know why? Other than the fact that it's my responsibility because over 50 years in the ministry, I've seen every mistake every parent ever made. And it's a thing where you learn, you learn to understand that, uh, you know, I've seen parents make sure their son or their daughter or whatever gets on a football team, gets on a track team, uh, gets on a volleyball team, a baseball team, you know, a basketball team. They will, they, will, they will do all that they can 
to see that that spend thousands of dollars. You have no idea in high school what these kids in volleyball and baseball and track, the thousands of dollars that their parents can, can shell out to ensure that they become better, 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 better at whatever sport they want. And, I, and I've, I've watched that pattern all my life. And they will do all that they can, spend the thousands of dollars to get them trained. But they'll never consider, they'll, they'll consider putting them on a team, but they'll never consider putting them on God's altar. They'll turn those kids over to a coach to mold and train their lives in athletics, but they'll never take the time to put somebody in their life to mold their spiritual character. And then they wonder why at the end of the day they're scratching their head what went wrong. And uh, you know what? It's just the way that it is. I've seen it all my life, all my ministry, everything in life, and you know this, everything in life has to be a balance. And many churches take the position, don't do this, just do this. That's out of balance too. You have to have a balance, but the Word of God and God has to have their predominance in your life. I grew up in churches. I got right with the Lord. I was in churches all my life, but I, you know, I got right around 1970, 71 in there someplace, 68, 69. I can't remember the exact date. But back then, Baptist churches anyhow. And I, and I know we're a Baptist, but I have no love for Baptist churches. I have love for Bible-believing Baptist churches. But I grew up in that era of the 60s and the 70s when Baptist churches were just about as goofy as they can be. The only difference between now and then is they are more goofy now than they were back then. But we would have it, and I'd have to be part of it. I was on a church staff in several places, and I didn't have any say in anything. I was just a gopher. And uh, it was a thing where, you know, we would have baby dedication day. And I'm going to tell you right now, baby dedication day was the biggest farce that you could ever put on your people in any church. It wasn't a fact that they cared about the babies. Hey, I was on the inside. They wanted a crowd. Back then, a crowd meant nickels and noses. You got crowd, you take a big offering. So you use the babies to bring them in there. Oh, and it was spectacular. You'd line them all, all the new. What parent, bring your grandparents, bring your aunts and uncles, you're going to line down the front with holding that baby, and some goofy preacher is going to pray some prayer of dedication over them, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, and that's supposedly going to make everything good. And probably some of you right now are thinking to yourself, well, what's wrong with that? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with that. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Babies don't need to be dedicated. Parents need to be dedicated. Not the babies. But it was a trick of the hand. It was a spinoff of a Catholic church who wants to make sure that you raise your kids Catholic, so they put all the emphasis on scaring you. So the Baptist preachers would scare you that if you don't bring your kid and you don't bring your kid to baby dedication, something terrible is going to happen to them. This is going to ensure that now they're going to be okay because you've dedicated them to the Lord. Forget dedicating your child to the Lord. Dedicate yourself to the Lord. Because your kid is only going to go where you lead him to go. As arrows are in the hands of a mighty man. So next Sunday, we will have baby dedication in our church. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, 
I've dealt with people all my life. Sometimes parents embrace stupidity like it was a virtue. I mean, they just, it's right there. You got one shot at your kids. Maybe two. Certainly, probably not three. And God's plan, and we saw this last week, God's plan was to uh, take moms and dads and build generations of families. Generations of children who were raised up in a spiritual uh, environment and trained and taught in the Bible, giving the balance between the world and Christianity and keeping everything in its proper perspective. Children, and then grandchildren, and then great-grandchildren, and then great-great-great-grandchildren, and then great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, and endless generations of children that are dedicated because of a family mindset of ministry for the Lord. This is what I love about so many of you young singles here and you young couples. And more of you are becoming less single as the day goes on. But I think that's a good thing. But my, you see, many of you came out of, and this is not a criticism against your parents. Please don't, don't look at it that way. It's just life. But many of you came before you came here. You came out of dysfunctional families where mom and dad didn't care about the Lord. Mom and dad didn't do anything with you. And I understand that. That's just the way life is. I just thank God. And I want to tell you something. It's no accident that you're here today. It's no accident that you're part of this church. You know why? Because God wants to break that cycle. That cycle has to start somewhere. Somebody in time has to say, okay, from this point on, me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And sometimes it starts right here. And I'll watch you, I watch you young singles get married and become in love with not only each other, but the Word of God and the Lord. And then you begin to, you begin to work, and I know that your families are going to be built down the line. You're going to make sure that everything is done that you understand the biblical concept of making a real sacrifice, and you pass that on to your children. We're a Christianity today that does not make any sacrifices for God. We are a Christianity that does for God out of our own convenience. And it all goes back to Genesis chapter 22. So today, we're going to start chapter 9. And I just want to read seven verses here, and then we'll, we'll get into this. And it simply says this. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made the clay of spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. Let's pray. Father, we ask you today, Lord, to open up our hearts 
We thank you for the men and women that are here today that want to serve you. And Lord, uh, always keep presenting those opportunities for us so that these people can get in and learn and grow and teach. And there's no greater, greater asset to our spiritual growth than being able to uh, teach the Bible, tell a Bible story, involve our lives with somebody else. And it's exciting to see what you've done here, not only with the high school and the Timothy ministry, but now an opportunity for these moms and dads, these men and women, to be able to go into the Bible's explorers and to learn and begin those first steps. No matter where they're at in their spiritual life, they can begin to be used of God and then grow from there. We thank you for that. We love you now today. Pray your blessings upon all that we endeavor to do for you. Put us under the blood today. May we find the freedom to preach and the freedom to hear the truth of the Word of God. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, this will be our first blind man that we encounter in the Gospel of John. As you read through the New Testament, you'll find there's several different blind men in the Gospels. And they, again, will all form for us a really good study. Now, we know that the Bible will break itself down into three applications. We have a historical application. We have a doctrinal application, some specific teaching given to uh, around Christ's coming. And then we'll have an inspirational application. How does this story apply to my everyday life? Well, okay. Historically, here it comes. This is a real blind man. The story is true. This was a real guy that, that uh, Jesus met, and the story is absolutely true. Inspirationally, it'll be a picture of an unsaved man. It'll be a picture of a man who is blind to the things of God. He cannot sin. He's blinded by this world. He's blinded by sin. And uh, as the old song says, I once was blind, but now I see. That's what the picture is. Doctrinally, it's specific teaching in the text here. This is a picture of the blindness of the nation of Israel. We are now know from John chapter 8 and everything in John, they have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, the leaders of Israel. They now even have said he has a devil. They've totally rejected his ministry to their nation, the nation of Israel. And now we understand the real fundamental reason. We've looked at all the other aspects. They're blind. They're blinded to the truth of what God has for them. And uh, now, looking a little deeper in this, and I want you to be able to get this in your Bible here. Look at, look at in verse 2. A question arises with the disciples. And they want to know that if this man's blindness is because of some sin that he did, that God struck him blind, or something that his parents did that God had him born blind. And we are told in this particular case that no sin was involved in this man's blindness. Now, that's very important. Because we also know that in Mark chapter 2 verse 5, and again in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 30, we know that in some cases sin can cause an infirmity in our lives or some men's life. So we know that it goes either way. But the important thing right now is this story. This story is going to illustrate something. This story is going to show you and me some great things about the issues of life. But 
This story is a really good lesson, not only giving us the picture of the nation of Israel and their spiritual blindness, but it's also going to be a great lesson in just a few moments of how we have to deal with the things in our life. You know, I don't do anybody any favor. No preacher does. If all he does is get up and and rah-rah about this and have a great time of this and do this and do that, or he just gets up and spouts off stuff. Look, you got to face the world tomorrow. you got to go back out among the wolves. Your family, your kids have to go back in scenarios that I can't even imagine when I was in school. You need more than a pep rally this morning. You need something in your life that you can take home that when the tough times come, and they will come, you can fall back on. That's what the Bible's all about. That's, 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 that's what we do. Now, in verse 4, I want you to see a few things here. Jesus tells us that this man's blindness was not part of any sin, but he says this, and this is a real key. It's part of the work that God sent him to do. Then he says, work now for the day because there's a night coming when no man can work. That's a great picture of the church age. Right now we're to do the work because there's a time coming in the tribulation that nobody's going to be able to do the work. And then in verse 5, he tells us that he himself, the Lord Jesus, is the light of the world. So we're kind of building a little case here. And we know that that would be the true light of John chapter 1, verse 9, that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Then in verse 6 and 7, he performs a miracle on this guy that will restore his eyesight. Now watch the sequence here. Watch the events as they unfold right before our eyes to see what we got here concerning the nation of Israel. Now, in verse 6, the Lord Jesus spits on the ground and made clay. I'll just say this. In the Bible, everything that he does means something. There's no filler material in the Bible. There's no, when they were putting the Bible together, well, we got a half a chapter left. Let's just put some stuff in here. Everything that he does, everything in that Bible will have a meaning for you and for me in one way or the other. Now, it may seem whatever that he spits on the ground and makes clay. And somebody may ask themselves, now, what is that all about? Why did he just make the guys see? I mean, he's done that before. Why did theatrics here of spitting on the ground and making clay? Because that's a picture to the nation of Israel of Christ's humanity. Clay in the Bible will always represent the human humanity of man. And that's a picture that he is the son of man coming to a blind nation, Israel. When you go back to Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 14, you'll find a great story back there about uh, Jeremiah going down to the potter's house. And in the potter's house, you'll read that story, the potter puts a lump of clay and he fashions a vessel uh, out of that clay. And that is a picture of God as the master potter molding the nation of Israel to be a vessel that God can use. 
And when we have this thing where he spits on the ground and takes the spittle and mixes the clay, he's showing us that the nation of Israel is blind and they're made of clay, Jeremiah chapter 32. And if that wasn't enough for you and for me in an inspirational, practical thing, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7 says that we have the treasure of God, the Word of God, in earthen vessels. You see, right now, this body, this physical body you got, when it was made, it was made from dust of the ground back in Genesis. Adam means red-brown. Out of the dust of the ground, God made Adam. And he made and fashioned him out of this very earth that he is making into clay. And God, just like the nation of Israel, the day you got saved, he puts you on the potter's wheel. Now, <laughs> you know as well as I do, if you want to make a beautiful vessel out of clay, you get a big lump of clay. That's a picture of you and me today I got saved. You know, that's all we were the day Christ found us is a big old piece of lump of clay. And God took us and put us on that potter's wheel. And then it spins, the wheel goes around. But I want you to know, it just, he doesn't come back in three or four hours and there's a beautiful vase or a beautiful pitcher or a beautiful whatever. No, once it goes around, he gets his hands involved and he applies pressure to the clay. He squeezes it. He presses down on it. He molds it. He shapes it. He adds water to it and it, 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 he, it's plier and he makes it with his hands and when he's finished with it, he has a vessel that is fit for the master's use. That's your life and my life. Now, we know in the Bible that the Bible says that God has vessels of honor and he has vessels of dishonor. You get to decide which one you want to be. But right now, you're all on the potter's wheel. And right now, as we see coming through this, there'll be some times that God will squeeze you. Now, sometimes he will apply pressure. There's sometimes he will want to make, uh, you know, uh, he'll put his thumbs in that thing. Boy, that hurts. And then he'll shape you. He'll put pressure and he'll make it big at the bottom and then he'll choke you in the neck. <laughs> That's what God wants with you. That's, you know what this church is all about? Any church should be. It's helped you as a clay vessel being fit for the master's use. You're going to have tough times come into your life. You're going to have things that are going to be hard for you. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And you've got to see it as it really is, not as it appears. So keep that thought in mind as we move on down through here. Then the next thing, the key word here now is the word anointed. And he takes the spittle that he makes in the clay and he anoints the eyes of the blind man. Jesus Christ is not only the Son of Man, but he is God's anointed and he is the Son of God. The word Christ means anointed. So now we see all the elements here of Christ coming to the nation of Israel. Now, that wasn't enough. Israel is blind. We know that from Matthew chapter 13, verses 13 through 16. The only way that their blindness is going to go away is if they accept the Lord Jesus Christ, the clay, 
as the anointed of God. The Son of Man as he came to them who in actuality was the Son of God. And as the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3 verse 16, God was manifested in the flesh. He came in clay. Which is what we saw in John chapter 8. The leaders of Israel, they won't do. They won't accept him. They rejected him. So Christ uses this man's blindness. Now remember, he said, this guy didn't sin. What I'm going to do, use him as the work that God sent me to do. But it was the work that God sent him to do. Come to the nation of Israel. So he says in verse 3, so the works of God should be made manifest in him. And God will use another great lesson for all of us is God will use object lessons in our lives. That's what he's using this young man for. This young man has become an object lesson to the nation of Israel. That if they will pick it up and get it and understand it, that they will be able to get the blindness of that nation taken off the scales of their eyes. Our ability, flipping back to you and me, our ability to see every circumstance in life that God puts in us to see the value of what we can learn from it. And of course, the ability to understand through our own relationship the object lesson that is before us. A while back, we talked about making righteous judgment, not on appearance, but judge through a righteous judgment. And I preached to you that morning, or I talked to you that morning about we never should judge people. But we should judge for our own personal involvement what they do. And the Bible says, He that is spiritual judges all things, not people. In my life in the ministry of 50 of, of some years now, I can actually say that, that, barring everything else, just taking the two main things, God gave me, for my understanding of the ministry, God gave me two object lessons. God gave me a man who probably was the greatest example and object lesson for me of ministry that any man could ever want. And then God gave me another scenario where it was the worst scenario you could ever want, and I learned from both. I never got caught up in the emotion of liking or not liking the person. I never got caught up in judgment of that. I realized that in my young growth and my young Christian life and where God wanted me to go, he uses object lessons. And I was never critical of either one. I was never critical of anything. I, I realized the value that God was allowing me to experience to see so I could in time form, based on my relationship with the Word of God, what God wanted me to be and wanted me to do. And God will use people in your life. Hey, God will use circumstances in your life. God will use situations in your life, good and bad, as object lessons. The problem is we get our emotions involved way over the principles of the Word of God, and we get our lives so extended out there that we miss the lessons. And of course, that's a tragedy many times. Now, here, here, here's a great key to the story. Look at verse 7. And he, told, uh, he was told to go wash the clay off once he anointed his eye with clay. 
he's told to go wash his eyes in the pool of Siloam. And when he does that, then he sees. Now, again, you look at that and you're saying, <laughs> is, is, this, is he just doing this for his own amusement? Does he want to see if this guy's going to follow some of this stuff that sounds pretty ridiculous? I mean, if I brought you out in a parking lot and, and spit on the ground and wanted to rub dirt in your eyes and then tell you to go wash in the third drinking fountain, how many of you would do that? That would be tough. We only got one drinking fountain. But anyway, it's a thing where, what, what's he doing here? Now, the pool of Siloam goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6. It's spelled differently back, or called differently back there, but it's the same, same pool. The pool of Siloam may be, and I don't have any proof for this, but I'll just throw this out. It, it, it may be when David in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 8, went up through the guttering of the water from the pool to take Jerusalem. There's a good chance that this was the pool that he went up through. Because the word shalom means sent, or, depending on how you lay it out, it means sent or sent one or to be sent. And our story, it's this pool here is chosen to illustrate that Christ, the humanity, son of man, son of God, the anointed one of God, was the sent one to the nation of Israel. If you go back to chapter, trained eye again, you know, looking for those things, you go back to chapter 8, the word sent is found five times in reference to Christ being sent to the nation of Israel. In verse 16 of chapter 8, he says, send me. In verse 18 of chapter 8, he again says, send me. In verse 26 of chapter 8, he says, send me. In verse 29 of chapter 8, he says, send me. And in verse 42 of chapter 8, he says, send me. Five times in the previous chapter, he makes a reference to Christ being sent to the nation of Israel. So when he's giving this object lesson, he's sending it into the pool to wash off the blindness of his eyes that represents the one sent to the nation of Israel. And in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, that great passage about God and Christ having a conversation, God coming down to man, Israel doctrinally, me inspirationally, he asked the question, whom shall I send? And he says, here am I, send me. See how that all works? You have to learn in time to develop the trained eye that you know what you need to look for. So that's the doctrinal approach here. And remember, all the stories, and I've told you this before, all the stories in the four Gospels dealing with people will all be a picture of Israel's spiritual condition. So the various blind men that we'll find in the Gospels will uh, always doctrinally represent that. Now, let's see how it applies to you and me very quickly here. This story will be a great truth to us in the New Testament church. And it tells us that not everything that happens to you and to me in this life will be because we've done something wrong and we're being chastised for our sin. The great book of Job is a great example of that, that Job went through some horrendous things in seven days, and he was an upright man, and he eschewed evil. He hated evil. So now when something hits us that is negative and we get impacted by it and it's a major issue, 
The lessons that I'm about to give you will be invaluable if you pay attention. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, a verse that everybody probably can quote, but not too many apply. It says that all things work together for good to them that love God who are called according to his purpose. That means all things there means all things, even the bad things. So let's look at it for a second, quickly. And allow me to give you a biblical process to check what's going on when the dark clouds roll in, and they will come. As somebody said one time, into every life, a little rain must fall. And if you can tell me what movie that line came out of, I'll have a surprise for you. I'm waiting. No, I'm just kidding. Now, the first, here's what you do. The first thing you do is examine yourself, obviously. Make sure that there's nothing in your life that will be the cause of what you're going through. Because we've seen in 1 first, uh, first Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, that we are told that every man examine himself. And we're also told that in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself. Now, when something bad or horrendous happens in your life, this is the first place you go. And the reason why this is the first place you go is because this will only take about 10 seconds. You will know immediately. It will not be you have to pray over God showing me did I not do something right. The Holy Spirit of God will point that finger like Nathan to David, thou art the man. And you will know in a heartbeat. Now the real question is, what do you do with that, see? And uh, I, I believe you, me, the Holy Spirit of God will let you know. Conviction of the Holy Spirit of God through the Word of God. We saw that when we, in John chapter 8, didn't we? And, uh, you know, if you want some good advice, be totally honest with God when you're dealing with Him. When I, when I sin and I have to take it to God, I talk real plain to Him. I don't try to hide it. I don't try to flower it up. I don't try to make it something it isn't. I just talk real plain. You know why? Because it's already plain to him. So you just get it on the table. Now, so that's the first thing you do. When you check that box and you're okay, then you have to understand based on our study today that there's six things that you want to consider after you get the first one done. Six things why God will allow things to come into your life that are unpleasant, that are ailments, that are issues that will change the course of your life. Six things to remember. A lot of times God will allow something to come into our life because He wants to keep us humble. You know, for all of us, it's easy to become self-righteous. And I don't mean self-righteous like really self-righteous. I mean just self-righteous. You know, people don't do what you think they ought to do the way they think they should do it. You want to criticize them. You know, and they're good people. So you, somebody doesn't follow it the way that you did or do the exact same thing the way you did it, and you, you begin to fall into that semi-self-righteous mode where because they didn't do it your way, the way you thought it should be done, 
that, uh, that there's something wrong with them. And uh, without ever knowing what's on the inside of their heart and what their motive was of why or why they did not do what they needed to do. Now, I realize that there are some people that are way out there that it's very obvious that I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that we all associate with, people who are in the ministry with us. And it's easy to get an attitude towards somebody because we don't like the way that they did something. And, uh, you know, and then we become invaluable in the ministry because now you are a bona fide heart reader. <laughs> Boy, I'm calling you up and having you read the meters of people that I need to have their hearts read. Now you have, you've come to the place where you now can really spiritually read somebody's heart. Not. You know what God has to do sometimes when we get that way? Knock us down a couple pegs. I mean, that's a good thing. I mean, knock down a couple of pigs is better than getting hit with a bus. And it's a thing where, you know, you gotta you gotta get to the place where you 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 gotta get back on your focus. And sometimes God has to take us down a peg or two to get us to focus, to quit looking at, at somebody else's heart and just start looking at our own. But I can't speak for you, but there's plenty for me to look at in mine. The second thing. Sometimes negative things will impact us. Some bad thing will happen. And I'm not talking about, you know, the air conditioner at work broke today and you sweat it all day. I'm not talking about you had a flat tire. I'm talking about some real things, man. This guy was born blind. Sometimes God allows those things to draw us closer to God and to make you more faithful. This is why the book of Psalms is probably the number one book for God's people in the time of trouble. They're drawn to that book, but they don't even know why. You know why you're drawn to that book? Because that's a book where David is going through the tough times in his life, and brother, he went through some tough times. And that whole book is a picture of him drawing close to God and getting back with God what he needs. It's a record of David going through his tough times. Sometimes we get so professional in the ministry. And we're not bad people. We're not out drinking and running around and doing all those things. We're in the ministry. We're working with people. We're doing things, but we just get that professional mindset. You know, the disciples had the same problem. And they're walking with Jesus every day. And they're out there one time. I can just see them, you know, all these little dirty little kids come up and want to see Jesus, and they just got their white robes out of the cleaners, and they don't want these dirty little fingerprints all over them, these little rat claws. And so, you know, they, they say, you know, they try to put them away. Well, Jesus sees it, and he walks over, and he says, what are you doing? And he says, well, you know what? We're, we're here for the masses. We're here for the, you know, we're getting the luncheon set up and a rally over here, and, and we just don't have time for these kids. Look how dirty they are. Look how this. And I, I mean, we got this big bus back here that says Jesus tour across the Middle East, and, and they're trying to climb in there to see what it's like and leaving their candy bar wrappers on the seats. And, and, just, and Jesus said, you know what, boys, let me tell you something. Except you come to me as a little child. I want nothing to do with you. You know what happened to them? What happened to us? Got professional. That's what happens to most pastors. Most pastors get so egotistical in their mindset that they don't have time for their people. You can't ever see him. I always told you, if you ever go to a church, the first thing you know if you want to stay there or not is ask the pastor if you can have a cell phone number. If he says no, out of that place. 
I mean, it's a thing where, what's he there for? What's his job? But we get so elevated someplace that we just want to hands off, you know, I'm the pastor and all those things. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's not the way Jesus handled it. And sometimes, sometimes we just get too professional in what we do. You know what Jesus did with his disciples when they got that way? John chapter 6, we studied it in great detail. He put them into a little boat and put them into a storm, didn't he? In the middle of the night, three and a half miles out, waves raging, crashing, that little boat sinking. And sometimes that's exactly what God's got to do to get our perspective back. That we're not who we think we are. The third thing. Sometimes we have to go through sometimes so we can sympathize with somebody else of what they're going through. You know, with all that we see on TV and all that we hear. I get it, man. I mean, in a 24-hour period, watching television, you'll see 60 murders, 18 rapes, four cases of incest, 160 shootouts, nine bank robberies. I mean, uh, you know, it just goes on and on and on. You, you guys, these young kids out here, and I'm, this is not a criticism because I don't really care, but I watch these guys play all these war games on their video thing. And, you know, they get to the thing there, you know, and they, they, you get all these, you get these little, I've never played them, uh, but you get these little, I mean, you ain't really had a war game until you really had an M16 and the tracers coming across your head. But anyway, and they're out there playing all these games, you know, and all this stuff and killing all these people, people blowing up, people falling and out. You know what that does stuff? It desensitizes you. You watch NBC, Fox News, ABC, CBS, ABC, NYZ, and all those things, and all you see is, you know, there was a time when somebody in this country died of prominence that we lowered the flags to half mask. We just need to leave it there. Because every week there's another reason to put it at half mask. This country's insane. Nobody cares about life anymore. This, this whole world, especially this nation, is desensitized to anything that's going on with somebody else. Well, there's people in the subways in New York. Somebody's being raped and somebody's over here being stabbed or mugged. They're videotaping it on their phones. That's the world we live in. And I'm just telling you, I have to say this. It can happen to you and me, too. Maybe not to that extreme. But we lose our burden for people lost and dying and going to hell. We lose our burden for people that we work with or people in our neighborhood or people here or people that, that, that uh, uh, or the people that God wants to put in our world. But you know what? We're desensitized to it. We've so many things that we've seen that we have just lost our edge. To it. You know what Stalin said? He says, when one person dies, it's a tragedy. But when six million people die, it's a statistic. And boy, I'll tell you what. We get to the point where there's so much death pretend around us and all the things that we involve in that in, in this fantasy world of shooting people, killing people, watching people die, watching television. We're like the GI I saw one time back in the Korean War in the Chosen Reservoir when the body couldn't get out and they had to stack the dead bodies up so high, they're like cordwood. And you know what that old boy was doing? He was sitting on a pile of dead GIs eating his K-rations. You know Why? Death had become an everyday thing. And with you and me, sometimes that's exactly the way we are. We don't care about the person sitting next to us. We don't care about the person that God tries to bring into our life. We're desensitized to it. 
the ability to feel what somebody else. And I'll tell you right now, there's sometimes there's nothing to say. Sometimes all you can do is hold them and cry with them. Sometimes, and, and Baptist preachers are famous for keeping on talking when there's nothing left to say. And sometimes you just, you experience what Christ did on a cross that's real in your life. You can transpond that into what somebody else is going through. The fourth thing. Sometimes tough times will come into our world and our lives to distance ourselves from the world and make heaven more real to us. You know, sometimes we get our roots down too deep in this world. It's easy to do. I don't think you get up in the morning and mean to do it. I don't. Well, you just get caught up in everything. I mean, you go to the mall and you see, you, you know, you see in the windows all the things that you don't have. You go down the street and you see the billboards of all the things you should have. I mean, your cell phone used to be something that was private. It's not now. I get, I get, I get phone call after phone call all day long of somebody wanting to sell me something. And I, I fixed them. I did, somebody called me the other day. I, I've got them down now pretty good. Somebody called me the other day and he says, hey, I'm from Medicare. We hear you have back issues and we want you to know that you qualify for, uh, for, the, for this, this, this. And all they want to do is hitchhike off of Medicare and then send you something that you'll never use. And they said, is this Mr. Alexander? And I said, no, he passed away two days ago. And I just happened to pick up his phone. They don't call anymore. You say you shouldn't do that. Why? You want to take the phone calls? I'll forward them to you. But I'm telling you, nothing's sacred anymore. They're after you for everything. They want you to buy this. They want you to buy that. They, want to, they, put, they put on the TV. They put the commercials about the cars and about the trucks and about this and about that. Everything, and it's easy. It's easy to just forget this when you have all of that. You got to work at it, man. I got to work at it. And sometimes we, we lose our perspective, don't we? We lose our focus. We lose our purpose. It's easy to do. I tell you how Solomon, who is given the wisest man that ever lived, that he probably was, but I also find out that what caused his problems when he got all messed up, the Bible clearly tells us that he was seven years building the house of God, but he was 13 years building his own. And anytime anybody, me or you or Sodom, and spend more time building our own stuff than we do with God, we're going to have some problems. Sometimes God just comes down and gives a little tap on the shoulder. Gives you a little rap on the head. Gives you a swift kick in the seat of the pants. And it shows us how weak and how foolish and vulnerable we really are. Like Abraham, oh boy, oh, he's a great study. Abraham. Abraham, Hebrews chapter 11, he looked for a city and a builder whose maker was God. That's what I'm looking for. I live at 8308 Woodson Drive. You can have it. Boy, I'll tell you what, I'm looking for a city that he built, New Jerusalem for me. And the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 9, verses uh, 1 through 4, a city that has foundations. You know what I've learned in this life in 50-some years? I'm 71, but I've been 71 years of my life. I've learned that nothing in this life has any real foundations to it except one thing, the Word of God. Well, the fifth thing, moving along here. 
Sometimes God will allow those things to come into our lives to show you that God's promises are real. You know, there will be, uh, there will be a, a greater, uh, no greater time of importance to God's people than when we are afflicted or we go through some kind of trial. Knowing the promise that God has for us in, in any and all you know, circumstances and situations that God will get, come through for you. And that can be hard sometimes. I mean, you get a bad doctor report, or you get this, or you get that, or somebody says this, and it's easy to forget. I don't care what Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine says. I don't care what anybody says. Your life, my life, is in the hands of Almighty God. And it's just that simple. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6 already told me he'd never leave me nor forsake me. I mean, I will leave and forsake him, but he'll never leave and forsake me. That's a pretty good deal. So it's a raw end on his part, but praise God, he's going to stick with us. And sometimes we just lose sight of that. So affliction comes, issues comes. And, you know, and then uh, all those things become more real to us. One of my favorite places in the Bible that I always go to when I'm faced with something, no matter what it may be, is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul was going through his great times. They were out to kill him. They were trying to murder him. And he was going through some tremendous times through no fault of his own, just doing the work of God. And you know what he said? He said, you know what? About God who hath delivered us from so great a death. And then he says, and doth deliver. And then he said, in whom we trust, he will yet deliver. You know what he just told me? God's going to take care of the past. God's going to take care of what I'm going through now. And God's going to take care of what I'm going through tomorrow. It doesn't get any better than that. And then number six. As you probably have guessed by now, based on our story, sometimes God will put us through some tough times so he can simply get the honor and glory out of it. Amen. You know, and that's a question for all of us. Sometimes God will put us through something. And this will take us back to last week, being God's sacrifice, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And the real question is, what are we willing to allow God to do with us? How much, are we, how much of us are we willing to lay on that altar? How much honestly are we willing to trust God as our father, as Isaac trust Abraham, to crawl up on that altar, carry the wood, there's the knife, there's the fire. You know what? The best position, and I can't speak for you, but the best position I've ever found myself in as a Christian is being out on a limb with God, way out there. And then look back at the tree where the limbs hooked onto the tree and see God standing there with a saw in his hand and a smile on his face. <laughs> Trusting through it all. See? And that's the real question for all of us. It isn't about how you're doing today. It isn't about are you saved or you're not saved. That's all immaterial. The real question today for 99% of you here, how much are you willing to let God use you? What limitations do you put on God? Well, God, I'll do this, but oh, don't do this. Oh, God, yeah, I'll go here, but oh, don't send me here. 
Oh, I'll do this, Lord, but don't, <laughs> don't ask me to do that. See? I mean, God forbid, and I, please, God forbid this would ever happen to anybody, but I'm just talking to you here. Would you be okay with God giving you cancer if God wanted to put you in a cancer ward someplace where you could win somebody else to Christ? I, I'm not saying I would. I'm asking all of us. Yeah, I, I, that's the bottom line. You see, that's the thing that women like Mary Reed, who was a missionary to the lepers, I told you about last week, she was willing to get leprosy if that's what it took to go to be a missionary to the lepers. I mean, and she could have she had a long stick with tracks on him and passed them out to him. She went down and lived with them for 50 years and never got leprosy. And she bathed them, she carried them, she washed them, she taught them the Bible. You see, this is the difference between Christianity then and Christianity. How about the Moravians that I talked about last week? Some of those old boys selling themselves into slavery for the rest of their life to reach the black man with Christ. And we won't, we won't, we won't, we won't even go down to the Bible Explorer to learn how to teach some kids in this church to help them in their future be what God wants them to be or in the Timothy group or the high school, or my ministries. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you. You know, I, I have people all the time, and we, many of you have done this, where you put those promises on three-by-five cards, you know, and you, you, whatever you're going through, and you get about 20 of them, and you'll keep them with you, and you, when, you, when tough times come, you just go through that. That is the beginning of you taking those three-by-five cards and those promises and those principles and getting them into your heart. You're not into your heart yet, they're on the card, but in time, if you do it, they'll be in your heart. You won't need the cards anymore. And sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we lose sight of the fact that all of the things that comes into our life, that God maybe just wants to use me and you, like he did the blind man, for the work of God to get the honor and glory out of it. And I don't mean this wrong, and I'm certainly having a ride by any stretch of the imagination, but I will tell you this. I don't think, probably, probably shouldn't even say this, but I don't think any Christian, no matter where or who or when, is ever really ready to do what God wants them to do until you're ready to do that. And I think that's a process you've got to get to. And I think that the day and age that we're living in, you're going to see it in a real way if things don't change. Now, those are the six things. But in all of these, there's one single truth that I think stands above all, and I would all the six that I gave you, and it would be a, a real amiss if I did not give you this. This truth is completely lost today. God's people are, are they're big on talk but they're short on the inner courage. And in the Christianity we live in today, fear runs 99% of God's people's lives almost in every direction. I've learned in watching the pattern of people that it's one thing to have the Word of God and claim you have the Word of God, but it's something else to be able to apply it and trust it when you go through some really tough times. And the one basic truth 
will be the key to, e to either our ministry or running out the door and not doing the ministry it's simply this, an understanding this. Whatever you go through, whatever tough time comes, whatever like to happen to this blind man, whatever befalls us in life, whatever happens to us as a church, whatever happens to all of Christianity in the crazy world that we live in, and there's plenty of crises that we have been through, and I'll tell you right now, there's plenty more crises coming. But I want to tell you something, and you better leave with just this one thing today. It's through crisis that God makes leaders. Nobody ever became strong in the Lord by not going through things. The potter's wheel demands pressure. It demands thumbs, fingers, squeezing. It demands molding, making. Now, we actually think that we are just a lump of clay. God puts it on there, and 20 years from now, since you've been saved for 20 years, you come out as a perfect little vase. And out of the smoke of ashes of any disaster or tough times, watch how the crisis will either make the man or break the man. It's the difference between in any combat situation that when you're pinned down and you're going to get slaughtered, everybody else is hiding behind a log or a rock or whatever they got, and one guy will crawl out in the immediate fire and expose himself to save the rest. That's leadership. Leadership isn't getting up and saying, I got a name tag that says I'm the leader. Leadership is leading through any crisis. And if you're ever going to do the ministry and you're ever going to be in the ministry and you're ever, going to, you're ever going to do what God wants you to do, you have to learn that your leadership skills will be purged through the fire of the crises of life that you have to face and work your way through with God and come out on the other side. The elephant in the room. For almost three years now, COVID-19 has thinned out the ranks of God's people everywhere across this country. The mask mandates, the stupid inconsistency of leadership in applying anything or talking double or giving in clear, it's just, you know, the shot mandates, the shutting down of, of restaurants and businesses and, and churches and, and, and everything out there. It's just an absolute, but it isn't going to go away. It is where we are at. People are scared to death over things like this. We got the first COVID-19 pandemic, and then when we are all breathing a little more, Delta came in, and now we got the Delta kind of under control, and I think now... Omni is coming. You might as well get used to it. It ain't ever going to go away. It's been designed and set up, and it's going to try to shut down and control everything and everybody on this planet. And you know what? I can't stop it. I can't fight it. But I can definitely, with my Bible, find a way through it. You know what? 
we came through the first bout. Hey, people left. I get it. I'm not criticizing anybody. It's okay. You got to do what you got to do. I mean, it was a thing where people were scared. I had one guy tell me, you know, when I come home from work, my wife meets me in the garage. I have to take all my clothes off, and I, she hooked me down with a hose, and I have to put clean clothes on. I mean, that's pretty drastic. I've known people that, uh, I've known people that uh, wear masks in their homes. I don't care whether you wear a mask or not. I, I respect all of that. But I'm saying, none of it should stop us. It's just that simple. And I can't speak for anybody else. We've navigated through the first one. We've navigated through the second one. We'll navigate through the third one, the fourth one, the fifth one, the sixth one. Now, you know what? It's okay. Because right around the corner is our promotion to glory anyhow. I'm okay with it. I don't want to be in the rear with the gear when he comes. I want to be on the firing line. And I can't speak for you. But I would, I'd love to, I, I have no problem crawling up on that altar and saying, God, whatever you want to do. Hey, I've been too many years seeing how the world does it versus how he does it. I'm with him. Because I don't care what happens, I know he's got. You know what David did one time? David, David really messed up. And the Lord said, okay, David, you're going to get whacked. But I'm going to let you choose. David, there's three doors up here. Door number one, door number two, and door number three. Behind every one of those doors is going to be a judgment on you and the people for your bad choice. Door number one is I'm going to plague the fire out of them. Door number two is the enemies are going to come down. Door number three, I'm going to deal with you. You know what David said? He said, Lord, there's something you don't have to pray about. I'll take door number three. I can't trust the plagues and I can't trust my enemies. But I know whatever you do to me will be right. I can get you better than that, man. Are you his? Are, are you his? Are you sure you're his? Because I ain't sure you are. Are you sure you're his? Well, then he's going to get us through. I don't know what to tell you. Mass, no mass, whatever you want to do, whatever you got to do. I don't care. The ranks of the fearful has been filled. And you know what? When we went through everything we went through, today as we stand here, we're stronger, we're tougher, we're more determined, and we're in better spiritual shape than at any time in our 18 years. You know why? Because we decided we're going to keep on doing what God's called us to do no matter what anybody else tells us not to do. And God's blessings are overfilling the walls of this place because of it. Because in the tough times that come, reveal the tough people. And leadership is built out of chaos. And that's, that's building leadership. The test of your metal, the, t the tension of your steel, the tip of the javelin. And, you know, we don't... I'm like General Patton. We don't... We don't retreat. We're not going to pay for the same ground twice. And I don't want to get into reports that we're holding ground. We're going to attack in the morning. We're going to attack in the afternoon. And we're going to attack in the evening. We're going to attack all day long. And we're going to attack and attack. And we're going to stay on the move. You know why? Because we're going to move forward. There's never a time that Jesus said, okay, time out now. I'm going to take a break because nobody likes me. He went forward. Paul went forward. The Waldensians went forward. The Moravians went forward. The Waldensians went forward. And we're going forward. And we'll continue to build leaders. Whatever happens, it'll forge through this church the men and the women who come out of the dust and the ashes. 
I told you this was going to happen. Zach went down and preached a funeral down in, uh, right on the border of Missouri and uh, down there at a little church and the pastor, you know, uh, and him spent some time together and pastor called me last week and I told you this was going to happen. It doesn't stop. It keeps moving forward. Here's a little church down there that runs about 75 or 80 people and he met Zach and they, they love Zach preaching at the funeral down there and and uh, the guy called up and he says, hey, he says, uh, um, I, I want to know about your discipleship program. And so I explained it to him and I said, here's what I'll do, Pastor. I said, whenever you can, I'm going to bring you up for three or four days. And I want you to see what we've got here. And, I want, and I'm going to put you in some discipleship groups with people to watch how they do it. And I want you to understand it. I'll spend some time with you. I'll put key people in your world that they can talk to and help you. And then you go back to your people, and if you want, I'll send a team down there to teach your people how to disciple. First one in a lot of years. There was times when we did it all over Europe. We did it in Russia. We did it in Ukraine. We did it in Hungary. We did it in South America. We did it in Central America. We did it in everywhere. There were times when I had teams crossing over in the Atlantic in jet planes going from one place to the other. And you know what? It all got shut down, but now it's all starting again. You know why? Because God's taking the leadership and bringing you to the point where now we're going to take these guys out here who really want to learn how to teach the Word of God to their people and give them what they need. And God's going to use you guys to do it. And it's just another ending deal. It's just what we do. Out of the ashes of any crisis comes leadership. And as the Word of God, as the world, you know, uh, as the world gets smaller and more controlling, we expand our freedom through Christ to do what God wants us to do. Nothing's going to stop us. I got the men, I got the women to get it done. God's given us the opportunities. He's given us the Word of God. He's given us the material. I just need men and women who are willing to crawl up in that altar and let God use them. We got them. Well, I'm done. Praise the Lord. Bottom line is this. Some of you people that are not involved in the Timothy or the high school, that you're just out there and you're ready to do something, go over to Jim's class and let him talk to you. Let him start with you. I don't want to put a bunch of people doing, a, doing the same thing. I want to build dedicated people to each ministry, the high school, the Timothy, and then the Bible Explorers. They need to get into church here to be part of this, but they need to, they got the ability to train you. So I want to see some of you over there after this message. You better get over there and do something that God's got you to do. Let's have a word of prayer. Hey.